Twin Peaks Unwrapped the book is almost out of print forever. We're at under 60 books now. Get the book at bluerosemag.com. Welcome to Twin Peaks Unwrapped. I'm your host, Ben Durant, and beside me is... Brian Kazaska. Hey, Ben. Hey, Brian, and we have... Hey, everybody. How's it going? Uh, my name's Sam. I'm one of the moderators for the uh, subreddit for Twin Peaks on reddit.com. And I'm um, looking forward to a good show. Hi there. This is Andy Bentley. Well, funny enough, I was telling someone I met uh, Ben and Brian at Mass Mocha show. God, it's, it's got to be a couple of years back. You were just about starting. Sometimes it feels like just yesterday and sometimes it seems like so long ago. Gathering in crowds. Hi, I'm Colt Wilson. I'm just a f- big fan of the show, big fan of Twin Peaks, big visitor to the Twin Peaks subreddit, and uh, happy to be here to talk about these episodes. And Andy and Colt will be performing some of these unseen Twin Peaks scenes. And let's introduce the unseen players. Hi, this is Robert Clear. I am playing one of the narrators and Deputy Hawk. This is Diana Stavrilakis, and I'll be reading the part of Little Horse. Hi, this is Aaron Cohen, and I'm going to be playing Cooper and Mike today. Hey, everybody, this is Joyce Picker, and this episode, I'll be portraying Nadine, 35 going on 18, and I'll be the narrator. This is Chris Matthews. I will be uh, doing the roles of Coach Wingate and Leo Troxett. Hello, this is Peter Holland, and I will be doing some narration. My name is Maya Adkins, and I'll be playing Evelyn Marsh and Catherine Martell. Hey, this is Jimmy Sisto playing Bobby. My name is Colt Wilson. I'm playing the parts of Jeffrey Marsh and Sheriff Harry S. Truman. Hello, my name is Andy Bentley. I will be narrating a scene and playing Doc Hayward. This is Marcel Fraser, and I'll be playing the part of Ben Horn. Hi, I'm Robin Lynn Norris, and I'm playing Catherine and the narrator. Hey, this is Julia Rollo, and I'm playing Dale Cooper and Shelley. Hi, my name is Sophia Quakus. I'm reading the part of Josie. Hi, Twin Peaks Unwrapped Politburo. This is Wild Bill Abelson, speaking 30 miles west of the double R. I'm going to be narrator and Thomas Eckhart. And so today, we're getting really ambitious. We are going to cover four episodes, which I say are from episode 19 to 22, but they're episodes The Black Widow, Checkmate, Double Play, and Slaves and Masters. Sam, we brought you back because you said you liked these episodes, or we, we had you on for the Lynch Madness, and these are kind of considered by many Twin Peaks fans as the worst episodes of Twin Peaks. But you wanted to take these on, right? Uh, yeah, actually, uh, people may believe it or not, but these are some of my favorite episodes of the show. And just, just kind of in a nutshell, the first time I ever saw Twin Peaks, flew in totally blind, uh, didn't really know anything about the show other than some murmurings here and there. And this was back in maybe 2012, well after the show had aired. Um, I just came across it on Netflix one day. And after we got past the Laura Palmer mystery, I was um, just really interested to see where all the other characters in the show went. And then as the episodes drew on in the rest of season two, we got introduced to so many characters and so many subplots in Twin Peaks. I was just interested in seeing what was going on in the world outside of the immediate Laura mystery. So I, I really did enjoy these episodes a lot. And so for episode 19, what is something that interests you about that episode? Uh, so this would be the Black Widow, right? Yep. I, when I went back and rewatched this the, the last time, really what interested me was comparing it to sort of the plots we get then that 
like after the series ended, we just had the self-contained season two and we didn't know what was going to happen after the fact. So a lot of these subplots or quotes or characters or whatever really didn't amount to much until we got season three. And one of the things in particular that stuck out to me was the scene with um, Colonel Riley. Um, there's just like one scene with Major Briggs' boss, Colonel Riley, and he says something to the effect of whatever Major Briggs is involved in look, makes the cold world look like a case of the sniffles. And we we didn't really add on to that at all the rest of the series we kind of got that in uh, one scene and it was very mysterious and then after that kind of nothing i mean we got more of major briggs plot of course um but it was kind of uh interwoven into all these what people consider less interesting season two plots so the thread was kind of lost but then when we get to season three we really do find out more about what major briggs was really involved in and of course they delve into that more in mark frost books and stuff like that so i feel like this one scene with conor riley finally got its due <laughs> like you know 20 whatever years later when the show finally came came back so uh props to colonel riley nice <laughs> yeah i mean i feel like as much as we criticize these episodes there's, there seems like there's little gems in every episode i really do feel like there's something that like kind of i mean i'm into the mythology of it so yeah this idea that uh project blue book and that major briggs is somehow is we lit you know we'll learn 30 years later or 25 years later that it really is related to the the blue rose cases and so in some ways it's kind of the evolution of the blue rose cases Sheriff's Office, Conference Room, Day. Cooper and a realtor, Irene Littlehorse, an American Indian in her mid-fifties, look at a book with photographs of her listings. Mr. Cooper, are you looking to rent or would you consider leasing with an option to buy? I'm looking for a little piece of paradise. Upon finding it, I'll consider any option. This just came on the market. It's a Victorian, 1890s. I can also recommend the old Longacre house. I'd like to see them both. Very good. Which would you like to see first? Cooper smiles, takes a coin from his pocket, flips it onto the table. It rolls and stops on a picture of yet another property. What is this? I thought I'd take that out. This property is called Dead Dog Farm, and it's worse than it sounds. Dead Dog Farm. What is it? A puzzle. No one ever stays there long. Dreamer after dreamer has worked at that patch of land. A parcel of vain strivings tied by a chance bond together. Little Horse smiles at Cooper. I read Thoreau myself, Mr. Cooper. I have to warn you, this isn't exactly Walden Pond. When can I see it? There was a, a couple of lines that got exchanged. I don't know, a book from the past or something. Thoreau. Thoreau, thank you. Yeah, and that that was a line that just didn't make it into the show. And I was I was I'm curious now as to why that didn't happen. I'm sure it was time. I'm sure it had to do with uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know fitting in commercials and all that. And at the beginning, I mean, the actual episode starts with him saying, "I want to look at both." But you did miss the first dialogue where she's kind of saying, "Oh, I have this Victorian house." And there's a line something about after the dreamer has worked the path of land. Yeah, Little Horse says something like, uh, "No one ever stays there long." Dreamer after dreamer has worked this patch of land. The dreamers probably over can be overused. One of these days, I want to edit every time the word dream comes into Twin Peaks because every episode, I'm <laughs> sure, is like, oh, isn't this the most dreamy music or whatever? I mean, it's always it's probably overused. Doesn't that doesn't that line though kind of make you think about Cooper getting the dead dog farm? Because if we consider him the dreamer, he does he's looking for a parcel of land to buy. He flips yeah. a coin and he has that Dougie moment where the coin takes him to a totally different place that wasn't even part right. of the uh, the two places. 
Yeah, I, I really was, like how in that shot, the you know, you get the shot of the coin going into the air and then bouncing off of the plate of donuts and yes. landing on the <laughs> It definitely does feel like it sort of adds to Cooper's, you know, his interest in Tibet and the sort of like, you know, the land of the people and everybody's been here and how important this is. And it kind of deepens that mysticism that Cooper has. I was just going to say, you know, again, nice to see an American Indian represented, particularly, uh, you know, given the time period. Mm. Uh, but, you know, I think given the time period, the show has done quite well with representation. Some people would say there wasn't enough diversity. Like this, I think this might be episode where you have the, is it right that you have the coach, you have an African-American coach and you have a Native American. So in certain episodes, we have representation and then other episodes, there's just it's white true. people. But yeah. I mean, yeah. you're right, though. I think in that area, you probably have more Native Americans in that yeah. area, possibly. But mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, I, w- I would have expected to see um, uh, more Native Americans just because of the region that they live in. Right. Right. Yeah. And Colt, what is, what is something that interests you about this episode? One thing that I kind of noticed going into this is that I, I also really enjoy these episodes. I think that they offer, they, they, you know, they're not really like, you know, it's not like watching the pilot where you're sort of watching it all play out and being wrapped up in the whole thing, but it is like you said, little gems here and there. And I was really interested in the stuff because my, uh, my fiance and I have been rewatching season three lately. And I've been very interested in all the stuff, you know, with Sonny Jim, and the relationship between him and Dougie and how a lot of it is communicated almost non-verbally. It's through their actions. You know, he sees Sonny Jim in the car and he's crying. And it made me start thinking about the little Nikki stuff and how the little Nikki stuff is probably one of the only things that's a through line in these four episodes that really doesn't do anything. You know, it's almost like a distraction for Andy and Dick. And it just got me thinking if David Lynch was still able to be, I guess, more involved at this point, I think he really would have been able to do something really special with that. You know, mm. having this kid whose parents died in mysterious circumstances, all of it feels very, but instead the show takes it into like a, is he the son of the devil <laughs> sort right. of thing that kind of is very goofy. But you know, I was very much enjoying that interplay between Dick and Andy and you know they're scared of Sunny Jim, but then you have the scene. You know the scene of the. I can't remember. Was it? The, is this the episode where Dick is changing the tire on the car, and it and like the car falls, and little Nikki's like, "What if you died? What if you died?" And it's like, I I feel like there's a lot to be mined there that just doesn't quite quite make it to, to the finish line. But I really, but I really enjoyed it. I wanted uh, more. Yeah. You might be the first person to have admitted enjoying the little Nikki subplot. So. <laughs> <laughs> I guess he, I he's on record now. Going in and going like, oh, if this was David Lynch writing this, it'd be, you know, tear your soul apart. Like, you know, the payoff is his parents. Like, they play, mm-hmm. the, they play the music that tells us, has been telling us the last season and a half. You hear that music, something is going to happen. Yes. But then it just cuts to the mayor dying, Dougie right. dying. But like, <laughs> if, you know, you heard that, you want to believe that in the next episode, we're going to find out that his parents could have been someone important in the town. Mm-hmm. That's my original thought when watching this. I thought, oh my God, his parents are going to be connected to someone. Well, you make a great point. If, if Lynch was involved with this or he was directing this, you have stuff like, uh, is it the tree, the tree mons? I get confused with, with, cause they're both of them, but the grandson there, you have, mm-hmm. you have uh, Austin Lynch who says she seemed like a very nice girl. Like how would, how would Nikki have acted? And, and he probably would have talked a lot slower and he, he would have been, you wouldn't need thought bubbles of Andy thinking, having him with a the, <laughs> Nikki with a devil pitchfork kind of thing. You would have just got it from the kid. From the acting of of the, yeah of the child and stuff, you would have been like he seems a little off. Yeah. Exactly, he should have been inhabited by Bob. 
Yeah, that's <laughs> no, where Bob went. Oh, little Nikki. <laughs> oh my God. Oh man. High school gym day. Wrestling coach Buck Wingate lectures his assembled squad who stare at Nadine Hurley and Mike Nelson standing next to one another in wrestling gear on the mat. Boys, there's a story about a great football coach whose name escapes me at the time who was dead set against having black players on his team until the day they brought him the most fantastic black halfback anyone had ever seen. When What's-His-Name watched him run 50 yards and no one laid a hand on him, he shouted, Look at that Indian goat! Coach Wingate slaps an arm around Nadine. That coach accepted that athlete's desire to compete. Today, that same story applies to this woman's, a young girl's right, to compete as well. In addition to which, it's her moral and constitutional right. Coach Wingate now puts his arm around Mike. Now Nadine has asked to prove herself to us by wrestling the very best. Our very own district champion, Mike Nelson. Ready to wrestle at the sound of the whistle. Wingate blows his whistle. Nadine and Mike circle each other, looking for the takedown. Hesitatingly, Mike makes a move for Nadine's legs. She takes him by the shoulders and lifts him above her head. She carries on a conversation only she and Mike can hear. Hi, Mike. What are you doing? Isn't it fun we get to be so close in public? Neck, you're breaking my... You're right. This is sort of like necking. With great effort, Mike escapes. But after her quick move, he is in Nadine's beer hug. I can smell your aftershave. (laughs) Wanna go do something tonight? I don't have a curfew, hint, hint. The rest of the team is yelling, pin, pin. Mike lets out a groan. To Nadine is an answer she can't hear. She flips him over onto his back. What'd you say, Mike? Mike fearing for his life. Yes, yes. He's pinned. Coach Wingate holds up Nadine's arm. Welcome aboard, Nadine. Too bad you're a senior. Nadine beams at Mike, who returns her look with terror. The need to really involve Nadine with all of these high schoolers just at this time, it really, I feel like so many times I've watched it and just been like, oh, whatever, you know, she has amnesia or something. This all feels very odd. And then, (laughs) Brian, have you ever encountered someone that said, like, this writer was like the Nadine writer? That, like, there was one writer that always kind of went to Nadine or no? I don't think we've ever heard anybody really hyper-focus on Nadine. I bet you any Peyton probably. I think so. He kind of became the person producing the show when Mark Frost, Mark Frost went off to do his movie. And so Harley Payton was kind of in charge. And I do wonder if he kind of spent more time on these silly things. This It's interesting. So there's this wrestling and, you know, you have the Mike and Nadine. And in the show, they don't say it, but I basically Mike says he will go out with her by the end of this scene. And I think you know, she's she does kind of play with him in the show, but here it's like she's wrestling him and she basically won't say take no for an answer. And it's not until he basically says yes that she stops. He kind of goes out with her anyways, but it's off screen, I guess, that he decides to. Yeah, it was a weird yeah. scene. It was a weird but, scene. But don't, don't they later then also have a scene where she confronts him at the double R and has to convince him again to go out with her or something? You're right, you're right. Back and forth. He's like, I don't, I do, I need a, like a, do I need like a court order to or right. something? Somebody who's joined the, the uh, Unseen Players is Chris Matthews. I mean, he's somebody maybe well known for fan festivals at Twin Peaks and stuff. He's he's a great he's a great guy. He's really out there sometimes. And so he did the coach and he'll be doing Leo later on. But I do get a kick out of him and I'm glad he was able to join 
the unseen players. So Andy, uh, what is something that interests you about this episode? I think it was kind of seeing more of the town with uh, Cooper and the buying of the house and things like that. You know, they seem to be new scenery that we hadn't visited before. Usually we're going to the same four or five sets. So I think that's what I always kind of remember from this one. Like um, you were saying, Sam, payoffs in season three, he talks to Diane. We see him talk to Diane and he talk, has this whole monologue about uh, wanting to settle down and getting married and having kids. And obviously that's not in the cards now, but it pays off in season three. He gets that. Evelyn's Garage. Day. James works below the Duesenberg on a sled. Evelyn Marsh moves into the room. James sneaks a look as she walks towards the car. She wears an open blouse and cut-off jeans. She carries a six-pack of beer and limes. James slides the sled out. Coffee break? Sounds great. Just give me a second. James slides back under for a moment. Evelyn drifts to the window, stands in the sunlight. So hot today. Feels like Indian summer. Can you have Indian summer in the spring? I don't know why not. I love the sun. Feels like it could just burn away all your troubles. Wouldn't that be nice? I guess. You've got troubles, don't you? Maybe someday we should tell each other all our sad stories. That could take a while. You must be absolutely fried working under there. Not so bad. Here, look. He enthusiastically slides behind the wheel of the car, turns to the key, and the car's engine ignites and purrs. Engine's fine. I think the axle will be okay, too. <laughs> How'd you get so good at this? My Uncle Ed. You think I'm good, you should see him. He can fix anything. Anything. Evelyn is lost in a sad thought. James snuggles with her gloom. Met your brother today. We were talking about your situation and everything. Mind your own business, James. A guy like me, I look at you. You got this house. All these things. You're young and beautiful. And <laughs> Maybe I'm dumb, but I don't get it. Why are you so sad? Am I so easy to read? You afraid of something? Afraid of your husband? Evelyn looks away. Are you? Do you know what it's like to be so alone and so scared that all you can think about is the wrong thing? James. James. You're so sweet. He wipes the tears off her cheek. They stare at each other for a moment. Then slowly, they kiss. I feel like he's stealing my life away. Why don't you leave? It's complicated. Evelyn clings to James. They kiss again. The tender kiss melts into passion, only to be interrupted by a car horn. My god, it's him. A car pulls up into the courtyard. She pulls away from him. I've gotta go. Don't worry about it. It's not as bad as all that. Please, don't worry about me. Promise. Evelyn, where are you, dear? Evelyn kisses him again, lightly, then hurries to the door. James goes to the window. A limo is parked outside. Through the window, he sees Evelyn embrace Jeffrey Marsh, a large, middle-aged man. James can't quite see his face. Walking in front of Jeffrey, carrying bags to the house, is Malcolm. He faintly hears their voices. How was your trip? Fine, fine, dear. I brought you something. They move into the house. James watches, hurting for Evelyn, hating Jeffrey. 
it's like the beginning of a bad porno or something. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> hey, how about that coffee break? <laughs> it, it doesn't seem like that coffee seems more Twin Peaks with her be like a wine break. You know, uh, yeah. It doesn't. It seems weird for her to say that. You're right. This dialogue goes more into the detail of of how troubled she is. I don't think that whole storyline is something that most fans are interested in. So it was it was probably good that it was cut down. I have to say this time watching this episode because I was actually forming Jeffrey Marsh for this and I you know I was thinking in my head I was like I'll just record the line then I went I don't know what this man sounds like I can't remember. So I went and watched the episode and I was I was fascinated by the actor I believe his name is John Apicello uh, who plays Jeffrey Marsh and it was sort of fascinating how I almost wonder if he if he was like a late casting or something like that, because mm. they, they, they seem far more interested in the James Evelyn thing. And it's almost like he comes in and he's, he's got this very, Oh, it's fine, dear. How are you? How is the car? How is James? This is James. Very nice. And they don't really give us much of a scene of him actually being cruel or, be, you know, we see that one thing I think later on where James sort of sees it from afar, but it, it just, it was very odd that it was like this this man almost gives off no vibes the character doesn't seem to give off any vibes to the point where i couldn't remember if there was a scene where he actually did abuse her and i was wondering is it just that she's telling james this to make him think that but it does turn out that he is abusive later on but very very interesting casting choice with that yeah character. i mean he's kind of a plump guy who wears like jogging clothing and he seems he actually he actually reminds me of harley payton in the sense that he's kind of very like relaxed and very like yes kind of he seems like he has a sense of humor and he seems yeah he it doesn't seem to meet with the idea of what we would think is an abusive husband later on we have malcolm as well that's not her brother and i was wondering is like is he is malcolm abusive as well i mean it seems like she's not mm -hmm. kind of surrounded with good people yeah, the dialogue really builds jeffrey marsh up to be a much bigger bad guy than he ends up being it's like they mm -hmm. talk about him like he's gonna come on to the show and like really be an imposing force but he's got like two scenes and then he dies <laughs> he drives off and never to be seen again yeah <laughs> i think we'll move on to the next episode which is checkmate and i guess we'll start with sam again what interests you about this episode um so one uh, scene in particular that really stood out to me uh, just because of how entertaining it was to watch um and from previous watches i, I guess i just didn't recall um, how much action was really going on was like the revolving door scene at ed hurley's house mm -hmm. he had norma jennings over there you know she's i, I can't remember if she's still in the house or she just left or something but um then uh, donna hayward shows up looking for uh, james um and he tells her that you know he's he's gone away and but he's fine and you know donna can take the money to him and then she leaves and uh, immediately after that uh, i think norma leaves and immediately after that he turns around and there's hank all of a sudden they get into a fight and then all of a sudden there's nadine there's like all these people coming and going in their living room i guess relatively short scene for twin peaks some characters who really didn't interact all that much just happened to be in the same place at the same time like i don't know if i can think of a single scene that donna hayward and hank jennings were in together can you mm. no no a, maybe apart from this one and they didn't even interact they just were in the same place at the same time um, yeah. so it was just a lot of action all at once i guess um, that's the one that stood out to me the script it wasn't even worth doing an unseen scene over this this the script starts with uh, norman ed in bed together and i think it's basically responding to how he wanted to tell her that he loved her i think she may have started earlier on in the episode she may have started it but it was like both of them exchanging just one line it's, i forgot how donna gets into this she just drops in unexpectedly looking for james and that's how she i guess gets on the path to go down to wherever evelyn marsh lives right. gives the 12 dollars yeah. brian yeah ed, ed goes 
here's the twelve dollars that he wanted. He goes, he goes. The line was, all you have is twelve dollars in your account, and he goes, well, whatever there's left, twelve dollars. So it's like here's an envelope of twelve bucks. But Sam, on that that one scene, this episode does it twice. I have nothing to compare it to, but old school cartoons where a character just shows up out of nowhere. You know, Hank literally was standing there, like just appeared out of nowhere. And then Wait for later, the right moment. Yeah, later on, <laughs> Leo kind of does the same thing to Shelly during the horror scene, I call it. But it's like these cartoon tropes. It's like tropes you don't see in television at all anymore because people would just be like, what? But like, yeah, it's like very cartoony. I mean, I like it, but it's cartoony. Yeah, it essentially seems to function almost like they're almost like sla- like slasher movie villains who can just teleport in wherever they need to be given the moment. <laughs> yeah, 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 pretty much. If you can get all the scenes in one location, I bet it's a lot faster to shoot and, and move on to the next scene. So if say everything's going to take place in the living room, <laughs> it's so much easier than having to do multiple places. and Totally. Yeah. So, Cole, what interests you about this episode? Really, this time I was thinking a lot about the, specifically the opening and how it kind of opens, like, you know, get that opening shot that looks like space and you see this this symbol come in that's mm. on Garland's neck or whatever. And we get that, we get Garland sitting in that that chair, kind of, and talking, you know, this very, like, monotone. Like a jungle or something? Or? Yes, yeah. like, it's very leafy. And, I, you know, I was thinking, this after season two, once season two ends, like the, the idea of the White Lodge is sort of gone. Like, you know, maybe perhaps that's where the giant lives or whatever. We, we don't really know. It's never really talked about it. But I really like this idea that whereas, you know, the Red Lodge is a discomforting place of, uh, as we can see on your screen, terrifying <laughs> curtains and floor and just horrible things happening, very unsettling people screaming, walking backwards and everything. The White Lodge being a place full of plants and life and still mm. not necessarily being a place like it's not super comforting it doesn't feel like heaven or something it's very mm. you know major briggs doesn't seem to be super comfortable or aware of where he's at but i like this idea that yeah it's 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 sort of teeming with life or something you know it's, mm. it's got all that going on to it i, I i'm kind of disappointed they never ever really explored that again i i think it's really interesting that they chose to interpret it that way you wonder if, if season three and you know 20 not 20 1991 92 if they would have gone back to the white lodge more right I feel like they. I feel like they probably had some developed ideas there for what this was going to be. Maybe this was going to somehow involve how they got Cooper back out of Lodge or something, but it just mm. never materialized. Andy, what about you? What interests you about this episode? Uh, it would have to be the final Renoir Cooper scene, where Renoir accuses him of uh, bringing the craziness here, which you could take on one level of look. We had our drug trade. It was going nice and smoothly. And now the cops are here and everything's ruined. Or you can see it as the Twin Peaks mysticism. See it at that angle. And uh, there's kind of a similar uh, approach in the Batman comics. Uh, and even in The Dark Knight, Alfred mm. says that you, you started this craziness. And now the Joker is just yeah. answer to your methods. Ben Horn's office. Day. Ben sits on the couch, enjoys a victory cigar. Someone knocks at the office door. Enter lively. The door opens. Catherine Martell steps inside. Hello, Ben. Ben reacts. She's a walking reality check, tearing Ben from fantasy's comforting embrace. Catherine. Catherine pauses, eyes on diorama. Gettysburg. Ben uncertain how to greet her. 
Yes. <laughs> Only you could conceive of winning the Civil War for the South. I have Washington in my sights. You have the nut house in your future if you don't snap out of it. So you've come to gloat. Come to celebrate my demise. Go ahead then, laugh. You've defeated me, left me for dead, as I have defeated General Meade. There's something wistful in Ben's expression, a kind of vulnerability Catherine's never seen before. Catherine looks at Ben for a beat, then a little wistful herself. Ah, true. I did come here to gloat. You double-crossed me. You tried to kill me. And I, for the very best of reasons, intended to bury you so deeply that future generations would someday unearth and exhibit your remains. Slimy, rat, bastard, Americanus. Do not feed. Do not trust. Not all that trustworthy, I suppose. Far from it. And yet, despite all the things I know, despite every reason you've given me to despise you, I find myself here with you, wanting you. You can't be serious. I want you, Ben. Horrifying as it seems, I can't escape it. You make my body hum. Ben looks at her speechless. Catherine reaches for him. Now kiss me, General Lee. Catherine pushes Ben down upon the soft couch. Mm-hmm. Both sides engage. Mm-hmm. I think the Ben Horse Civil War plot um, is humorous in its own way, but uh, Catherine's quote just reminded me of like, I think if if this season had been made right now, I don't think there's any way they would have even tried this. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Trying trying to. Right. to you know, make the Civil War the or the South in the Civil War the victor. Um, I think it works for Ben because at least at the time he was definitely a more villainous character and had a lot of uh, negative character traits and stuff that maybe you could be reflective of the South if you want to try to interpret it that way. But yeah, it's it's such a weird, 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 weird subplot. <laughs> um, even even for back then, I guess. But they they did it, and <laughs> you know now we have it in Twin Peaks. It's so bizarre. I did write down that it felt like using the Civil War plot, having it be so goofy, seemed like an easy way to give. Dr. Jacoby something to do as well. Like, oh, this man's having delusions about the war. We could bring in this character. Right. True. It works in that way. But yes, it's very goofy. Kobe's helping everybody. He's got to be there for for Nadine. He's got to be there for Ben. I mean, he's like the only shrink in town that can help everybody out. During this time, I think in 1990, there was Ken Burns' uh, Civil War documentary. So that was what inspired. Oh, it was in the conscious. (laughs) (laughs) It inspired, I think, uh, Mark Frost and, and maybe Harley Payton that they say, oh, this documentary is so popular in our culture. Can we use it in <laughs> Twin Peaks? And I don't know. Why don't we move on to the next episode, Double Play. Double Play. And we'll start with you again, Sam. What interests you about this episode? I, I sort of am going to uh, go along with Colt um, about the little Nikki plot. I put it in this episode because this happens to be the episode where the plot becomes resolved with Dr. Hayward and all of that. And like we said earlier, it doesn't really seem to go anywhere. It doesn't have really any impact on the second season in any way, shape or form. It just kind of ends with Dr. Hayward telling them what happened and then we move on and we never really reference it again. However, in context with uh, the third season, it's kind of like a weird tangential side plot of the overall um, Andy and Lucy relationship. Um, You know, in season three, we now know that they have a kid um, and we get to meet him in one of the scenes. 
Um, and then this this whole thing in season two that's going on with Dick and Andy was all was basically a contest between the two of them or, or something like that to try to prove to Lucy that they were um, fit for fatherhood, basically. And I guess it was more Dick than anything. He tried to adopt little Nikki to prove to Lucy that he could take on the responsibility of fatherhood and all these weird comical shenanigans happened. Um, but I mean, it only, this, this subplot only exists because Lucy got pregnant and then eventually she ends up with Andy and we meet the child that resulted from that. So it's almost like it does kind of fit in with season three a little bit, but mm. I don't think anyone, anyone's, no one's ever going to like admit that. <laughs> <laughs> Sheriff Truman's office, night. Close on the fibers of a fabric tape. We slowly pull back revealing that it is the tape covering the mouth of a dead man. A surgical gloved hand reaches into the frame and slowly pulls the tape off the mouth. Inside the mouth, attached to the tape, is a black chess piece, a pawn. We pull back to Doc Hayward, Agent Cooper. Good Lord. Cooper reaches in, removes the chess piece and examines it. It's a match to the pieces on the chessboard set up on the table. Harry enters the room. No one saw a thing. The blackout and fire drew everyone out of the building. Andy will need this dusted for prints. Cooper drops the chess piece in a bag and hands it to Andy, standing inside the door with his eyes closed so he won't see the body and cry. He reaches out for the bag, misses it. Truman puts it in Andy's hand. Andy turns to leave and walks into the wall with a thud. Andy peeks, adjusts his trajectory, and makes it. How long has he been dead, Doc? Hard to tell. We'll need an autopsy. Doc, open the victim's shirt. I believe you will find an incision. A stab wound, one inch beneath the sternum, penetrating upwards, severing the aorta. Hayward and Truman exchange a look, then Doc opens the shirt. Cooper was right. You've seen this before. Cooper nods, examines the floor. No bloodstains. Cooper picks a pine needle up off the floor, then walks to the middle windowsill, examines with magnifier. Hawk comes in the door. Hawk, footprints. Two sets, same boots. One coming, one leaving. Heavier impressions on the way down. Carrying the body. We should get molds made of those before it rains. He'll have been wearing the wrong size shoe, untraceable and already destroyed. I followed them to the granite stream up the ridge, lost them on the tracks. He knows how to mask a trail. Any cars stolen in town recently? It was one a couple of days ago, from the cash and carry on Sparkwood. No witnesses. Cooper, you're sure Wyndham Earl's behind this? Cooper nods, steps to the window, looks into the darkness. A short time ago, a vagrant... Our victim was befriended and offered a lift. He was given some cheap wine and a cigarette. The victim was then driven to a location up behind the ridge. You'll find the car still up there. He was stabbed, once, managed to run at least 50 yards, cutting his hands and face on brush before collapsing. Earl engineered the explosion that caused the power failure, created the diversionary fire that drew everyone outside the station, then brought the body in through this window. Wyndham Earl has been in this room. I can still feel his presence. There aren't going to be any fingerprints in here, Harry. No slip-ups, oversights, no mistakes. Everything he does has its own rationale, precision and intelligence. Wyndham Earl is a genius. And he's taken his first pawn. In a very sick game. 
this is the first time we get a female Cooper performing. So Julia Rolo is actually uh, playing Cooper in this scene. So we're, we're, we're starting to mix up the genders a little bit with unseen Twin Peaks uh, scenes here. And we're letting anybody perform any parts, which I think is great. I mean, I think it's fun to just play whoever wants to play the parts. I think Julia did a great job. In this scene, there is some Andy in this. More of this like uh, comical Andy um, where he's struggling to look at death. He walks into a wall or something on his way. played a little bit more slapstick than it was in the pilot. I don't think it would have worked for the scene, at least the way it was shot. I like the setup of, you know, it's not like the garish stuff you saw in like Hannibal, but it is pretty cool to see the hand and the, you know, it's, it's a good setup that the yeah. dressing department did. I also like that this scene sort of implies Cooper's sort of talking about when tomorrow, like he's telling, like, you know, the victim was picked up and given this and everything. And he gives this insight into Wendem Earl. It made me think, like, was Wendem Earl part of what, like, the Blue Rose Task Force? You know, he seems to have this charisma about him that all these agents have. And he's got this analytical ability that, that they all possess. And it's like, it's sort of like this idea that maybe Gordon Cole is picking people that are sort of wild cards. You don't really know which way they're going to go almost. Mm. They have these talents, but something clearly happened with Wyndham Earl that is making him use these abilities for essentially evil, pure evil. Do you see video of Wyndham Earl that he, wa he was part of uh, Project Blue Book, which mm -hmm. it's Project Blue Book that will move on to becoming part of uh, the, the Blue Rose cases and stuff like that. So it's quite possible that he was working on the, the Project Blue Book and could have been groomed for Blue Rose Task Force, but maybe he, he didn't actually get accepted because he was mm -hmm. such a a crazy guy. Leo Johnson's house, night. Shelly desperately tries to open the door, but it's been locked from the outside. No! Shelly looks back into the kitchen. It's pitch black. She can't see a thing. Oh God, please no. The sound of a creaking wheel on the wheelchair is heard. Leo? Out of the darkness comes Leo's wheelchair directly toward her. It knocks over a lamp, comes closer and closer. She jumps out of the way as it crashes into the door. Shelly starts for a window. Something flies through the air and lands at her feet. She freezes. A bar of soap and a sock lays on the floor. A guttural laugh rises out of the darkness. Don't do this, Leo. From the darkness comes Leo. Leo! Leo! The refrigerator door swings open. The light from inside illuminates a grinning, crazed-looking Leo. Once over! Leo laughs again. The refrigerator slowly closes. From the darkness comes the sound of a foot dragging across the floor. Shelly makes a break for it. Out of the darkness, Leo's hand grabs Shelly by the neck, pulls her close to him. Leo, good! He smiles then throws her across the table, sending her and everything on the table crashing into the corner. <laughs> Leo shuffles towards Shelly, his left leg and arm not quite up to snuff. He stops, reaches up, and turns on the radio. Leo like music. Shelly picks up a toaster and hurls it at him, bouncing it off his chest. Leo looks at the toaster, then down at his chest. Shelly tries to run again, no luck. Leo has her, grabs her by the throat. He starts to spin her around, his grip tightening on her throat as he does. Shelly tries to pull away, but even with only one good arm, Leo is too much. Desperately close to passing out, she strikes, gouging at his eyes. Leo erupts in a rage, 
throws her into the living room where she crashes against the wall. Leo then flips the kitchen table over and lets out an animal-like howl. Leo's back door, night. Bobby steps up to the door, still buzzed from the evening with Audrey, takes in a deep breath of the fresh night air, and hears Leo's howl. A bruised and battered Shelly cowers in the corner as Leo slowly approaches, a silent monster. Bobby tries the door, but it won't open, then bangs on it. Shelly. Shelly. Bobby walks over to the window and looks in, rubs on the glass to get a clearer view. Shelly pulls herself up to the glass, bruised and crying. Shelly? We hear the howl again, then Leo's fist comes crashing through the window. Bobby tumbles away from the window in terror. Leo? From inside, we hear Shelly scream as Leo grabs her. Bobby races to the door and tries to break it in. No luck. Leo has Shelly by the hair and is dragging her toward the living room. They reach the kitchen and Leo drops her onto the floor, stands over her for a long moment. Goodbye, wife. He raises up his big boot above her face. A tear falls from his eye. He's going to crush her. Shelly screams. <coughs> Bobby bursts through the back door and is on Leo before he can react. They tumble to the floor. For a moment, Bobby has an advantage. You bastard! Leo suddenly reaches up with tremendous strength, grabs a surprised Bobby by the neck and flips him onto the floor, then is on top of him. Leo smiles. Hello, Bobby! Leo begins to laugh, then tightens his grip. Bobby gags. The throat is beginning to go. Bobby manages to reach into a pocket and pull out his lighter, flicks it on. Leo stares at the flame, transfixed. Bobby moves the lighter close to Leo's face. Leo smiles, transfixed. Bobby then adjusts the flame and it shoots up into Leo's face. He erupts in a scream and covers his face with his hands. Ah! Leo stands, bounces off the walls, knocking things down, then runs out into the darkness. Bobby crawls over to Shelly, takes her in his arms. A tear falls from her eyes. Bobby! It's okay now. He's gone. Don't leave me again. Please, Bobby. Please. I'm here, baby. Everything's alright now. From out of the darkness, we hear another one of Leo's howls. I read this on, on the script. I was like, oh, I'm so glad they didn't go this way. Because, like, Leo, it almost seems like he's a Frankenstein. He's like a cartoon character. Like, he's like a, a Jason or a Freddy or... I enjoy the sort of slasher movie vibe that the Leo attack has. You know, you get the shots of the hatchet and Bobby trying to... There's a great part where Bobby's trying to get in. Like, Leo's arm comes out of the window to trying mm. to grab Bobby. And then we cut back and Leo's back over at Shelly. Again, it's got that, like... Jason Voorhees, like, he's just wherever he needs to be to attack whoever he's right. attacking. Kind of yeah, thing. it's like he just ran over there and stuck his arm yeah. out and then yeah. ran back over to the other place. <laughs> I love it. It blows my mind every time. Yeah. Yeah. It's very creepy, the unfinished home. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. The plastic wrap yeah. on the... The, the plastic and the wind, yeah. Yeah. In the script, Bobby's able to get rid of Leo by using his lighter and somehow the light, somehow the flames get up really high and it scares Leo <laughs> off. And like looking on paper is like, oh, this is a horrible idea. What are horrible. you thinking? And I didn't even think technically, how are you going to pull this off? And also, I don't think it should be Bobby that sh- it saves the day. I'm glad that in the TV show, it's Shelly who's been attacked and abused all this time. She fights, basically, I think stabs Leo and, and he takes off. Well, but it all comes around for her and, you know, yeah. uh, the, the cycle completes. The, you mentioned the fire. Uh, Bobby's trying to stop Leo with fire. Yeah. And I, just looking over the, the 
unseen scene where he has all these very um, stiff lines that he's delivering, like Leo good, Leo like music and stuff like that is very much like a Frankenstein monster. I, th I think somebody may have already mentioned that. And Frankenstein, didn't he like die in a fire at a, or something like that in the, in the movie? Yeah, at the uh, windmill, yeah. Yeah, at the windmill, exactly. The monster dies at the windmill in the fire. And so if Bobby's trying to take him out with fire, like were they Frankenstein movie mindset at the time when they were writing this? Seems that <laughs> Just way. like ripped the plot straight out of that movie. <laughs> <laughs> And Robin did the narration for this, and I thought she did an excellent job and made it believable, and she really did, uh, she did a great job for this. So nice job, Robin. Andy, we're still on Double Play. What, what interests you about Double Play? Well, given that my first appearance on the show was uh, regarding the autobiography of Agent Dale Cooper, uh, it has to be the scene with um, Truman where he talks about his failure. Uh, and uh, does he directly mention Caroline at this? Oh, Cooper? Yes. Yes. I believe he does. And there's more Earl. And I just did a quick look. So this um, is more like January of 91. And our uh, autobiography is in May. Our autobiography comes out during the lull in between it canceled and the final two coming out there. So I would assume right around here is kind of where Scott Frost is developing the background yeah it definitely it puts the seeds in place for the choices that cooper makes in season three and i'm really glad that they built off of this early failure for cooper sort of brought him into the cooper that we know that's like no no i can fix this i can do this so the last episode we're, we're covering here is uh slaves and masters sam what do you think about this episode okay i got a lot to say about evelyn marsh here <laughs> <laughs> this is the so end of her storyline, right? Uh, yeah, it. exactly. So that's why I put this one here. Counting the all the episodes we discussed, plus maybe the one prior to the one we discussed, I think is where she originally gets introduced, perhaps when yeah. James leaves towns on his on his motorcycle or whatever. Um, so she's around for like five episodes, mm. and like I, I understand why some people who don't like the plot are just like, "Geez, Pete's like leave, like go away. This plot needs to be done because it just drags on and on." And the, there's even a scene where James is like, "Oh, I'm leaving," and then he goes to check his bike, but then somehow later he's still at the manor he's like i don't know like by his bike in the rain crying or whatever he was doing like it's, it's just it took him so long to leave but anyway um i i i'm bringing this up because i i wish if we could go back in time and change the way this plot played out um they could have tied this somehow back to twin peaks and the mystery that was happening within twin peaks and I'd always thought that, um, particularly because I think, isn't this the episode that Diane Keaton directed, um, yes. right? And there's yeah. the, the very end of the episode when uh, Malcolm um, gets shot and um, there's that tussle with a gun and everything. It's played in that kind of weird slow motion way that happens during Lonely Souls when Maddie dies, um, mm. which I have no idea why they decided to go this direction because it was great when, in the scene with Maddie because it made a lot of sense with you know the struggle with Bob and everything. But then here it seems totally out of place and out of nowhere. But had they kept that and maybe brought in some element of the Black Lodge, like uh, James was drawn out of town uh, to this weird place that um, Evelyn Marsh lives and maybe Bob or some spirit like him was extending his reach outside mm. of Twin Peaks in some way through the marshes um and that scene where they're in the slow motion uh, could have been like the the reveal of now hey look this is the thing that's going to tie us back to the evil and the mystery of twin peaks and look what james got himself involved in and it all finally amounted to something um of course that's not what happens uh, james just goes back home and 
you know, I don't know, do we even get any resolution really of what happens with the police investigation? I guess they just drop everything with him. Yeah. Um, I know that Mark Frost briefly mentions um, Evelyn Marsh, I think in the final dossier, Mm. Um, just kind of tying up a loose end of like, you know, she ended up killing two guys or whatever, and then he totally moves on. So there is like one tiny little mention of Evelyn Marsh. She comes back in the final dossier. And so when he was releasing that, um, you guys may recall that Mark Frost did like a fan fiction writing contest. Oh. And like, I, th- I think the prize was like an autographed copy of his book or something like that. But uh, <laughs> the, the goal behind the, the fanfic contest was to write like two pages, picking some random side character that didn't get their due in season three and act like you're reporting back to Gordon Cole about your time in Twin Peaks and what's going on with that character. And so um, when I, I participated in that and I picked Evelyn Marsh because um, I thought it'd be great to finally give her something interesting to do. Um, and so I had her like, you know, after the 25 years had gone by, we're in season three now. I mean, because of her murders and everything, she was serving an indeterminate life sentence, basically. So she uh, was 20, 25 to life. And so I was like, imagine if she got out and she moved to Twin Peaks and now she doesn't have any money anymore because, you know, she's not tied to Jeffrey or any of these other people. So she's got to move into like the Fat Trop trailer park or something. And whenever James Hurley goes to play just you and I at the bar, she's like, you know, in some corner booth, like watching him. And she's like watching him at night when he's making his rounds at the the hotel and stuff. Just like a weird obsession with with James and, you know, it, it never went away. And then she's in her prison cell, like writing on the wall, just you and I with like contraband <laughs> lipstick. <laughs> Um, oh, I don't know. Like it was like they could have done something like that that might have actually made it matter. But uh, it's just one of those weird plots that happened, and nobody likes to watch it, <laughs> and yeah. it dragged on forever. Uh, but did, here yeah. it finally ended, so we were at the end. <laughs> you mentioned, you know, Sam. That. You mentioned the whole slow mo. We had learned from the director who shot the the, the funeral scene there at, at yeah. back in season one. The whole reason James and Bobby's like you are dead, and that slow mo and stuff, which I think is great. The scene was too short, and they needed enough footage to to fill it so that <laughs> it out. Yeah, yeah. So it, it just comes out of necessity. There is no way they didn't have enough <laughs> Evelyn Marsh footage. They had way <laughs> too much Evelyn Marsh footage. Oh my gosh! I, I, yeah, as we see, we tried to cut some of it out. I mean, I did see find some places where there were more, and it's like, oh, thank God, we can't do any more. We don't need any more of her. <laughs> It does definitely feel like maybe if season three had happened at that time that the, you know, they, they have the scene of saying, oh, it's, it was this guy named James Hurley's from Twin Peaks that maybe that would have followed James in a way and kind of been his early subplot, maybe in a potential season three or something. Cole, what interests you about Slaves and Masters? I sort of have two quick things about this episode that are two of my favorite things from Twin Peaks, honestly. I love the reintroduction that Albert gets here with Truman. Uh, when he comes in that they just immediately embrace and have this whole thing you know it just feels like such a great culmination that since season one we've kind of been on this tumultuous ride with Albert and Truman and that they they end up reconciling and having a genuine like what feels like a a genuine kind of friendship which seems like something that Albert doesn't do with a lot of people for sure the other thing I wanted to touch on is that I very much enjoy I've always enjoyed Jerry's terrible accent and performance during the civil war scene <laughs> him coming in and saying you know i i admire your sword sire and like he's coming i know that like it, it just it feels so bizarre and then bobby just stepping into frame with that horn and blowing it it's i just i love the construction of that scene and everything it's <laughs> it's, it's it's such wonderful comedy 
<laughs> I do really, I do want to add, you, you don't even have to include this, but I do love the fact that they include uh, Pete in the chess thing. It sort of reminded me of how they bring the log lady into the law enforcement stuff. Yeah. In, you know, when they're getting into like, there's that scene of them all entering, she comes to the sheriff's station. It was that like bringing a character who's just, you just love this character and this actor and they really want to make them a part of things. And it, it gets Pete away from the Josie stuff, which was bothering me in these episodes. And I'd never really thought about how, is Catherine just, drugging pete or keeping him like perpetually drunk because because she's you know feeding him like champagne and stuff and, like he's not <laughs> reacting to the fact that they're basically treating josie like they're slave or something and it's, yep. it's very bizarre to me yeah. well the episode is called slaves and masters well i mean it wasn't yes, original yeah yeah the german anything. titles are right yeah the german titles blue pine living room night josie packard in servant's uniform, places the last piece of silver upon a large dinner table set for two, situated at the center of the Blue Pine living room. Catherine Martell, dressed to entertain, supervises Josie's lowly chores with relish. Josie, please, give the fork a little room. Put it right there. Perfect. Now you may prepare to serve. Who will be joining you this evening? That is a secret. Just then, the doorbell rings. Josie reacts with a start. The door. Josie nods, steps to answer it. She opens the door, goes white with fear. Thomas Eckhart stands before her. He stares at Josie with dark, soulless eyes. Catherine chirps from the rear. Ah, Mr. Eckhart. Welcome. Josie reacts with a trembling panic, uncertain whether to stay or flee. Eckhart finally turns his gaze from her, smiles at Catherine as she approaches. Thank you. Josie, where are your manners? Help our guest with his coat. I must confess I received your invitation with some surprise. Word travels fast at Twin Peaks. It seemed fitting that I dine with my late brother's business rival. Some wine, Josie? Eckhart listens to Catherine's charter, now looks up at Josie as she steps toward them. Your brother was not always my rival. We were friends. Andrew was a witty, intelligent, and charming man. Plaudits no doubt employed to describe his sister as well. But your friendship soured. Sadly. Men of business frequently find their personal lives disrupted by the larger portraits they paint. You consider yourself an artist? Of a sort. Your brother was as well. I wonder, Mr. Eckhart, when you had him killed, was it for art or money? Don't stand there, Josie. Poor. Josie nearly drops her bottle of wine, but Eckhart betrays no emotion. He simply turns his gaze from Josie to Catherine. Catherine's playing a dangerous game. Eckhart will play along, for now. Josie pours blood-red wine into crystal glasses with a shaking hand. Call me Thomas. Your brother did. Thomas. We'll have the hors d'oeuvres now, Josie. Josie moves off to fetch them, as the conversation continues. One does not kill for art or money. They are commodities easily lost, but just as easily gained. However, one, rather I, would find reason to kill for love. Did you love her that much? Josie returns, offering a tray of canapes. 
Eckhart takes a small canopy from the tray and speaks quietly. Yes. Eckhart pops the canopy in his mouth. Josie nearly drops the tray. Catherine speaks evenly, as if describing a prized possession, finally giving this love a name. Josie has the most incredible hands. They affect a sort of porcelain grace, each finger a thing of beauty. I remember. Eckhart reaches out to touch Josie's hand. Josie stands up with a start, freezes. Eckhart never takes his eyes from her. I wonder, what shall we do with her now? You've come so far to Twin Peaks. It would be a shame to leave us empty-handed. It would. On the other hand, Josie is completely untrustworthy. She'll betray you again and again. I have managed to find pleasure in even that repetition. Of course, I'll miss her cheery disposition. We've become the very best of friends. Two girls chatting over tea. Perhaps you should purchase an animal of some kind. A cat or a dog. But if I give her to you, what will you give me in return? How can one put a value to something so precious? But you will try. Yes. Josie. Josie stands mute, trapped in this waking nightmare. She can barely manage a whisper. Yes. Thomas and I will have our main course now. What I got out of this is there's more, there's definitely more understanding of where Eckert is coming from. Like, you get a, a better sense that he loves Josie. The whole thing was always convoluted. It's always I, muddy, isn't it? It never is clear in your brain. <laughs> Anything with Josie was always kind of convoluted, but... And it does feel like Mark Frost tried to sort of address that a little bit in, in the books, you know, trying to give more backstory to the Josie thing. This is what she was. Was it she was, like, uh, running like was she like running a prostitution ring or something like that in, mm. in, over then, and this is how they met, and... They try to contextualize Josie as maybe a little bit more morally gray than she seems to be in the show, less of a victim. I don't know. It's odd. It, it, it's yeah, still the, confusing, even with the context. The book paints her as like this criminal mastermind almost, yeah. and but the we don't get that vibe at all in the series. Mm -hmm. So I think the acting is great. I think some of the dialogue and seeing how they're fighting over Josie was interesting. It took away from what we loved about Twin Peaks, because I think we always want to know about Cooper and the mythology, and so... By this point, I think we're, we're just kind of like, when is Josie going to leave or something? We know that later on she gets killed off. I almost, I was thinking about this today. It's unfortunately they didn't kill her off through uh, Wyndham Earl. Like, what, wouldn't that have been a powerful, mm, like, you have right. Wyndham Earl killing people off. Why not no, make it victims. an actual person that we kind of care about, that's a, a real character that's been on the show all this time? I think that, that would have been amazing. Well, that would have really that raised the really, stakes for uh, Harry Truman. Yeah. I, yeah, yep. I, I think it would it would do it would serve a lot to tie that plot because honestly, at this point in the show, the Catherine Josie Eckhart stuff feels to me like the most separated from what's going on with everybody else. Yeah. And I feel like if they tied it a little bit you know, outside of Truman visiting her and kind of awkwardly not realizing the situation, you know, he's a sheriff. I feel like he should be a little bit more concerned than he is. He's kind of just like, hey, I'll leave. That's because I can't do anything, you know. <laughs> And it comes to make out. Kind of, it's like, yeah. don't you recognize a situation of like house arrest, essentially? <laughs> like you should know. But you know, we kind of have to go until she 
dies on the bed and gets turned into the doorknob before it really becomes more involved with Cooper's story and stuff. Andy, what interests you about Slaves and Masters? I mean, I always remember the Diane Keaton direction uh, here. Um, when I first watched it, you know, I was happy. I was pleased. I was like, hey, things look weird again. You know, there were, you know, quirky things going on. But um, I think it was maybe Brad Duke's book where I heard that, you know, she, you know, wasn't kind of a pleasant experience on the set a bit. And that some critics thought she was trying to ape, you know, David. But I never really thought any of that when I first uh, encountered it. A um, couple scenes that, you know, I always remember are the officers in unison uh, at the bar. Yeah. Uh, the coat, uh, Pete with the coats and the door back and forth with... Uh, Cooper. Uh, she actually does this two times where she frames um, people within the little uh, windows and doors. She does it with uh, Truman and Norma over at the diner and over at the diner with Shelly and Norma uh, behind the bar with the ice cream cone uh, mm. in between the two of them. Those are the ones that stick out to me. She's yeah. a painter. And, and, and yeah, mm -hmm. we learned doing okay. the show. Yeah, she's a painter herself. And her, I mean, it, <laughs> She did photography. She was very photographer, much a photographer. Yeah, photography. Yeah. And um, she was, so she's an artist as well. So she has that eye, like Lynch, I guess. But yep. I always loved her directing. Like, I was so surprised when I first saw this. I thought the same thing. I was like, it's, it's a little off kilter. It's a little bit different. I love it's different takes on things. And Ben, you know, he tells me, he was like, a lot of people didn't like this episode because of what she did. And I always thought that was weird because I kind of liked it. Yeah, I, I just want to add on and say that, yeah, I think that there's a lot of times throughout these first two seasons of Twin Peaks where people can maybe be, people can accuse them of trying to ape Lynch's style or do stuff. But this episode to me is one of the few that does it in a very successful way. I, I totally agree with everything there. I yeah. think that people were picking up on that and maybe trying to criticize her for it when in fact I think she lands it better than a lot of the other people who attempt it. Yeah. Yeah, and in my opinion, um, of the the this bulk of season two episodes, is probably one of the most well directed, in my opinion. And um, mm -hmm. the previous episode, I, I always mispronounce his name. Is it Uli Edel or Uli Edel? Uh, I, I'm iffy on his name's pronunciation, but I, I personally, I think his episode was one of the worst directed. So, I, and to me, I've got like in the season two slump, so they say, we've got U Uli's episode where I think it's probably like the worst directing I've seen in the whole series. And then followed immediately by Diane Keaton's episode, which everyone says is one of the worst, but I think is probably one of the better ones. The previous episode had all those weird shots with the totem poles and the strange uh, classical music and mm. stuff. I, I don't even know what that was all about. So not, I don't think any of that kind of artsy camera work was working for his episode, but Diane Keaton's I think worked pretty well do we have anything else to say about all these episodes before we go uh i did want to note that we did we get the introduction of Wendy merle using disguises here and it's <laughs> sort of like introduces like you know cooper's really good at deducting things albert's really good at science stuff Wyndham earl is a master of disguise is sort of <laughs> <just> great. <laughs> it's like a scooby-doo villain almost Ryan, are you always yeah. the one that to say that twin peaks must have a costume shop or <laughs> Nadine uses it. What they go to the hotel. Does with Civil War. And yeah, yeah, and uh, they're going to go sneak into the hotel and they dress up and. Uh, well, they they must have been selling a lot of costumes for the Miss Twin Peaks contest too. So. That's true. <laughs> they got a lot of business. And otherwise, how could Wyndham Earl assemble such a perfect log lady costume so quickly? <laughs> it's just ready. It's perfect. It's, it's the best cosplay I've ever seen of the log lady. 
Unless he broke into the log lady's house or something like that. He's like, I gotta get in there. <laughs> I know. And she must just have a closet filled of the same right. uh just a pile of the same log just yeah. in the closet. Yes. <laughs> you thought it was one log, but it was multiple you know, logs. Yeah. Dozens. <laughs> I'm gonna bring this up only because it's something that's fascinating, but Hank's domino, which he for some reason I think it's in Black Widow or Checkmate when he sees Norma and uh, Big Ed kiss, or they're, she's touching his hand. You know, they're like, we need to talk. And I think that's checkmate. Check, okay. Yeah. And they do a close-up yet again of him with his hand on the counter, and it pans down, and you see the domino. Now, we see the domino in his mouth when he was in prison. <laughs> We've seen a drawing of a domino. Now this domino. I, I, yeah, I think the domino thing kind of disappears eventually. And... I was thinking about it today, thinking, okay, maybe the domino could have been like, I know it's his calling card that means nothing, but I was trying to put something onto it. And so I think I think of maybe Hank places people like a domino effect. So he, he killed, he supposedly killed Josie's husband, which he's still alive, but like he puts these people in places and then he's the domino man, maybe, and he just watches them all fall. I, that's the only thing I could come up with. But he's really not that smart. I know. <laughs> so why with the domino? I, that's the only thing. Like he sets up people, and then they take the fall. Maybe, you're thinking it too. maybe he's just a very simple guy who likes to play games, and he just likes dominoes. I know. I'm overthinking the domino thing. I, I well, was thinking about it today. If I remember correctly, so that shot that you're talking about where we see Ed and Norma together and we see the domino, they don't really show much of Hank. They basically just kind of show the arm, and it goes down, and you see the domino. And I thought, because I think we haven't, at that point, we haven't seen the domino thing for a while. I noted that scene in my notes, and I thought, they're just using this, like, it's almost like going down onto to, once again to use like a slasher like it's going down on jason Voorhees' machete like you don't see jason Voorhees' mask but it's like this is you know oh the domino thing this man was like sucking on a domino for yes. some reason at some point and it's it's, it's like you said it's a, it, they use it very much as a calling card if the actor wasn't available you could just have a stand-in and just have somebody standing there mm -hmm. and be like oh that's hank because we know he's got a domino at least i come on we should have had a death where he killed someone and they left dominoes over the eyes and we'd be like oh it's hank i mean <laughs> anything with that domino but domino i don't know I, I, yeah i was just trying to think like maybe he plays people it's, he's playing people like dominoes and he can manipulate them, but he's a big Gumby. I, I, I mean, he's not really a, a smart guy sometimes, oh. though. Yeah. Um, you might be able to correct me if I'm wrong, but the domino in question that we see in the scene, I don't even think is the same one from earlier in the series. I think it's got like a different uh, number of dots on it or whatever. You're right, Sam. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I guess he maybe he has, he's got like a whole arsenal of random dominoes that he, he's just <laughs> constantly carrying around. Right. I don't know. I think early on also, it was just the reason I thought it was like a domino that had significance was because it seemed like an actual domino from a playing set. But later on, isn't it like a keychain? Yes, yeah. there's a keychain. Yeah, there's like a little chain hanging from it. And why <laughs> yeah, does he Some draw? people collect, I don't know, some people collect pigs or who knows what they collect, figurines or who knows what people collect, but maybe he just collects yeah. random dominoes. <laughs> Yeah, sending sending the drawing early on definitely makes it feel like they had the idea of like he's the domino kill. You know, they were going to introduce some mm. element around this, and it just sort of fell by the wayside. Yeah, I, I would have loved that, like the domino killer, mm -hmm. right? Like a serial killer in Twin Peaks, and it was him. <laughs> that would have been great. Well, I want to thank the unseen players, which includes Andy and Colt. Thank you guys for all the performances you guys give. I had so much fun to have 
the, these unseen scripts and have people acting them out and get to hear it and it come to life. And, and it's so much fun. And thank you guys. Thank you, Andy and Sam and Colt for coming on the panel. And before we go, I'd love if you guys want to share with us where, how we can follow you on social media or if there's anything else, any projects you're doing that you want to share with us. I guess I'd start with Sam. Uh, well, I'm, I'm, I guess I'm not really like a web personality per se. I just happen to moderate the Twin Peaks subreddit. So rather than plugging my own stuff, I would just invite you to um, check out the subreddit if you haven't already. Um, it's www.reddit.com slash the letter R slash Twin Peaks. Um, so come join the conversation. Awesome. Colt? Um, I also, I have literally nothing to promote, but I would like to say, uh, please check out more of Twin Peaks Unwrap. Absolutely check out the Twin Peaks Unwrap book. It is 100% worth it and an excellent, excellent read. And definitely visit the subreddit as well. It's a great community with great people and some great discussion happening. Cool. And Andy? Yeah, check out the Twin Peaks book the boys have. I've got a little blurb in there. And uh, A-B-U-D-D-A-H on Twitter. I uh, helped the boys out with some uh, podcast art in the past. If you need some work uh, with podcast art, I could maybe help you out. Cool. And Sam, are you, you're in the book too, aren't you? Are you in the Twin Peaks Unwrap book? Um, you know, I, I'm actually not sure. I, I bought it and I started reading it and then we had our son and like my life just like exploded into a massive disarray. So I sort of lost the thread. I, I, am I in your book? I don't know. I think you are. you are. I think you are. I think you are. Oh my God. Okay. I, I, Tell me what page it is. Cause I I'll look, back I'll look afterwards. But some reason I, th I feel like uh, we tried to have everybody from who have been on our shows in the community to be you part of You sent us book. something. You, you're in there. Yeah. I do I'm recall sure sending you like a, like a quote or something, but I, you're I, I in don't there. think I ever got around to checking to see if it made yeah. it. And Sam, I want to say congratulations on the, the baby. Yeah, oh, well, congratulations. Yeah. Congrats. Exciting. Yeah, man. Jeez. Like, <laughs> we're, we met you back at the Twin Peaks Fest. It was like, it's, that feels like, ye well, it was years ago, but. I know. What was it? It's come like three and a half years ago or something. Oh, yeah. my God. Wow, yeah. Jeez <laughs> Louise. We're all growing up. <laughs> You're all getting older. We're all getting older. Yeah, I feel like a real adult mm -hmm. now. Like I have a house and like a mortgage and like a kid. So, yeah. wow. I've long gone are the days of me sitting in my apartment with no responsibility watching Twin Peaks for the first time. Now I've got <laughs> actual stuff I have to do. You're, you're moving into your Doc Hayward years. Exactly, yeah. <laughs> if, if, I, if I can really embody Doc Hayward's um, demeanor in my later years, I think I really will have made it. Well, thank you all for being on the show. We're trying to get to episode 29 by, by June, which will be the 30th anniversary of episode 29. So we are in, heading that way. Thank yeah. you again, guys. Yeah, thank you. Thank and you. you. Thank have you. a comment, a question, a theory about today's episode, give us an email at twinpeaksunwrapped.gmail.com. Follow us on Twin Peaks Unwrap on Twitter. Like us on Facebook. And subscribe to us on iTunes. Give us that five-star review because it does help. We're on Spotify, Google Play. And our book is under 100 copies right now. So it's going quick. And uh, with that being said, we'll see everybody in a week or two. Nice hat, Bobby. Gentlemen. Looking sharp, Bobby. Gentlemen. Get a life, punk. Gentlemen. Biloxi, Houston, Oklahoma City, Selena, Chicago. Earl's been sending gift-wrapped packages to police departments and offices of major... <sighs> gift-wrapped packages. Sorry. Okay, Should I continue? Okay. Sorry. Fuck. Um, Goddamn. White veil. A garter. A pair of white slippers. A pearl necklace. 
finally, a wedding dress. It's Carolyn's. He's got DEA, FBI, Treasury, Postal Department, not to mention Mississippi, Oklahoma, and Illinois State Patrols after him. Everyone's invited to the party. But my guess, he won't dance. Everyone's invited to the party. But my guess is he won't dance with anyone but you, Coop. He's got DEA, FBI, Treasury, Postal Service, not to mention Mississippi, Oklahoma, and Illinois State Patrols out looking for him. Everyone's invited to the party. But my guess is he won't dance with anyone but you, Coop. The vagrant in the office died of a knife wound which severed the aorta. He's dead two days here. Now, his finger is pointing directly at this chest piece. How did Earl manage that with the, the rigor mortis? Well, no, rigor mortis goes from head to toe, but after two days, it leaves the body from toe to head. So we waited for it to leave the arm and the fingers so they could be maneuvered onto the chessboard. And then he played Zeus at the power station. What was found? This map, taped to the bottom of a table. Good work, Albert. <laughs>